0: Hello,
1: it's Manveen. We're away for the bank holiday, but in the meantime, we thought we'd introduce you to one of the newer hit podcasts from the Times stable. It's called Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover from Times Radio. Every afternoon from Monday to Thursday, Jane and Fee bring you a fresh look at the news and some pretty lively conversation. In this episode from last week, they speak to the author of a new book about how Britain prepared for nuclear Armageddon at home during the Cold War. When it was reviewed in the Times, our book critic wrote, it's a frightening but also rather funny book about how the British took refuge in pointless planning. You're in for a treat. I'll be back as usual tomorrow, but in the meantime, here's Jane Garvey.
0: This is an interview with Julie McDowell, author of, I have become markedly obsessed with this book, Attack Warning Red, which is Julie, who's um, a historian. She's become slightly obsessed herself, as I think she'd be the first to admit, with what a nuclear war would mean or would have meant if it had happened uh, in Britain or to Britain during the 1980s. So her book, Attack Warning Red, is, well, basically, it's, uh, it's come out of all the research she did on a whole load of declassified documents about civil defence and about what would be planned and who'd do what and how the collapse of civilisation would, well, there'd be a sort of an attempt to overcome it, but my goodness, it would have been extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible. Anyway, it stems, Julie's interest in all this stems from the fact that when she was very, very young and she'll go on to explain just how young, Um, Britain was subjected to a BBC film called Threads. Now, it was about a nuclear attack on the city of Sheffield. It was incredibly powerful, extraordinarily explicit, and it led, really, to Julie basing her working life around what nuclear war would be like. But I put it to her that, really, at the age of three, back in 84, Julie should not have been watching Threads in the first place.
2: My dad was in charge of me, and my dad um, was quite a cool young dad. He still likes to think of himself that of that uh, that way. So he, no doubt, wasn't uh, up for put the kid to bed a sensible hour, make sure she's washed, teeth brushed, etc. I think he just thought, oh, she'll be fine, and he just left me on the floor playing with my toys. And then when Threads came on, it was on BBC Two at nine. Obviously, as a three-year-old, I should have been tucked up in bed by nine. He couldn't be bothered. He was too busy watching Threads. And he just thought, oh, she's fine. I'll just leave her in front of the TV playing with her toys. But then um, the film started. Of course, as a three-year-old, there's no way I can understand what the film was. You know, a film about the Cold War, about a nuclear conflict. But I was able to, of course, observe the scenes of horror on the screen. Jesus Christ, the dummy. The dummy. And as a three-year-old, really all all I could take in was the horror. I couldn't understand the thinking or the politics or the conflict behind it. I just took in the horror. And a scene that always sticks with me is... um, there's a, a scene where we see a doorstep, an ordinary doorstep on an ordinary humdrum street in Sheffield. And there are milk bottles on the doorstep and we see them melt and crumble in the heat of the nuclear flash. And that scene just stuck with me forever because it's so it's so calm and ordinary and domestic, putting the milk bottles out for the milkman to collect. And here they are melting into a, a sticky heap on the doorstep. And that just horrified me. And there's so many scenes and threads that just stick with you forever. And the director of the film told me that that's why he chose such strong images, because there almost aren't words to describe nuclear horror or the absolute horror of a nuclear war. You have to go to things like uh, just images to tell the story because words almost aren't enough.
0: Well, like you, uh, I am still haunted by images from threads. Uh, What's so bizarre is that Mick Jackson, the director, went on to... Well, he's the man responsible for The Bodyguard with Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston. Um, He's had a most unusual career trajectory, hasn't he? (laughs) Well, some people would say that film never leaves you either. (laughs) I think it has, that one. Um, Go on, Julie.
2: Uh, Yeah, so Mick Jackson knew that um, if I want to get the horror of nuclear war across to people, it has to be done through images. And there's a famous scene in the film where one of the survivors, Ruth, who's heavily pregnant at the time, uh, all her family have been wiped out, killed in various ways. She is the only survivor from the people that she knew, and she just wanders in a state of uh, shell shock, I suppose, wanders silently through Sheffield, just looking. So we, I suppose the viewer is Ruth at this point, just looking. And there's no great, you know, Hollywood screaming coming from her. There's no great drama. She just walks through Sheffield looking bedraggled and exhausted. And she looks at, um, you know, cur- uh, corpses which have been blackened. Uh, there's a famous scene of a woman clutching a dead baby to her breast, trying to, you know, nurse it back to life almost And she takes in all these horrible scenes. And then at the end of her infamous walk through Sheffield, she throws her head back and she just howls in despair. But then the howl itself is silent because, as Mick Jackson has said, words almost aren't good enough, neither are human sounds. Her scream is almost meaningless Mm. when it's stacked up against all this horror. So, yes, I was (laughs) kneeling in front of the TV as a three-year-old watching all of this. And, of course, that's responsible for my whole nuclear war career. That experience has never left me.
0: It's just quite extraordinary. It was shown then in 1984, and what, uh, never again on terrestrial television?
2: It was shown on one more occasion. It was shown the year after, 1985, to commemorate, of course, the Hiroshima and Nagasaki nuclear bombings. Um, But after that, nope, never been seen again. I've tried to badger the BBC with the small amount of clout that I have on Twitter to show it again, but uh, nope, it has never been um, back on TV. Uh, I think maybe it's just too... It's just too much, it's just too strong, too powerful, uh, and there would be lots of complaints you know these days people are quite quick to take offense about a lot of things, quite quick to complain. I think the BBC are perhaps a bit scared to show it again, um but perhaps just now with what's going on with in Russia and Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, perhaps they have to be a bit more careful. It might actually cause some genuine panic and discomfort if it's shown just now. But I would say that's a good thing. We should be uncomfortable and worried and anxious with what's going on in Ukraine. And can we talk a bit
1: more about those people who you mention in the book, Julie, whose lives were completely ruined by their belief that their reality was going to be ended? I was so struck by the story of Elsie Marshall.
2: Well, that's a horrific story, yes. Um, it's, it happened in the in the 50s. Elsie and her husband, an ordinary working-class family, husband, uh, wife, three daughters, they killed their three young daughters, uh, gassed them in bed, and then they, the mother and father, uh, vanished to the seaside, jumped to the sea, roped themselves together, jumped into the sea and uh, killed themselves by drowning. And the suicide letter that they left for Elsie's mother was about fear of an impending war. Um, they, of course, remembered the Second World War, and they didn't want their children to go through another world war. One which, of course, this time around would be a nuclear war, pro- probably one involving uh, atomic and thermonuclear weapons. And at the time in the fifties, when they when they did this terrible thing, this murder suicide, the news, the newspapers were constantly filled with talk of an impending war but also with constant talk of nuclear tests all around the world. America were doing it of course, we were doing it, the Soviets were doing it and we were beginning to realise what that meant. It meant of course fallouts and the, the poison that that left in the, in the environment. So this family were seeing these news reports everywhere and I dug into the newspaper archives and I saw that even what I assume would have been their local newspaper, the local papers in Lancashire where they lived, Even these small local papers were talking about nuclear tests, so there was no way to escape the threat of nuclear war. It was being talked about at the highest level, and it worked its way down to even the small local papers that were hitting the doorsteps in Lancashire. There was no escape from this. It was all encompassing. And of course, that's the horror of nuclear war. It can happen, say, in a bomb can drop in London, Moscow, Washington, you know, the big capitals, but... The small towns in Lancashire, for example, can still be affected by it because of fallout. The blast might be in the big city, but the resulting fallout can drift on the wind and can reach the lovely rural, quiet, um, innocent, if you like, parts of Britain. There is simply no escape from a nuclear attack. But it's
0: interesting in the, um, our civil defence preparations, which you detail, I was going to say almost lovingly in the book, were based on the slightly odd, well, the ridiculous notion that the aftermath of a nuclear war might be a little bit like the Blitz. And I'm saying that and I'm not in any way suggesting that living through the Blitz was a walk in the park either, but that was the absurdity at the heart of it all.
2: That's true, yes. Um, At the beginning of the Cold War, we continued to apply the same techniques to civil defence that we'd used during the Blitz. And I don't blame the authorities for that, because, of course, it all worked... Well, in the Blitz, as we know, we, we survived, we came through the, the rescue techniques and the, the welfare um, system that was set up to help survivors, that all worked. So the government, I like to think of it as a kind of Blitz hangover, the authorities said, OK, well, let's apply the same techniques. But behind the scenes, uh, Clement Attlee, for example, who of course, was our first uh, post-war prime minister. He knew very well the reality of it. And he knew and said to his colleagues in Whitehall that um, it's futile if we try and apply the same techniques to a nuclear attack. It's absolutely futile. But I, I'm reluctant to say this, but if I have sympathy for the government and for the authorities, I can understand why they clung to those old methods, because It might have caused panic or despair or perhaps a wave of left-wing nuclear disarmament fever, which, of course, would have favoured the Soviets in the Cold War if they had said to us bluntly, these civil defence tactics, which worked in the Blitz, will not work against a nuclear attack. Indeed, nothing will protect us against a nuclear attack. (laughs) And even if you did survive it, you might wish that you hadn't, because the outcome will be so horrific. Mm. If the government had been brave enough to say that bluntly and openly then yes, we could have had panic, despair, we could have had a wave of suicides, and it would have benefited our enemy, the Soviet Union. So reluctantly, I say I can see why they were happy to mislead us, at least with the the truth about civil defence. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
0: We are talking to the writer Julia McDowell about her book, Attack, Warning, Red, and we went on to ask her what the British people would have been expected to do if a nuclear attack were imminent.
2: Civil defence had changed through the Cold War. Um, At the beginning of the Cold War, as we just said, it was was still very blitz-like. But towards the end of the Cold War in the 80s, for example, it became very, it's almost as if it became facturite. It became as she famously said, no such thing as society, you should look after yourself. So instead of saying, OK, the government will provide shelters down in the London Underground, for example, and we will come round with hot tea and blankets, instead of all that, it became look after yourself. And the most famous example of that was a booklet, which some listeners might remember, called Protect and Survive, which was issued in 1980. And it said, basically, the home, your home, has to become your protection against nuclear attack. It's not the government government it's not society, it's yourself. So you have to fortify your home. So you have to, you know, get sandbags and board up the windows, etc. You have to gather first aid supplies, you have to secure uh, uh, water and food enough to last you for 14 days. And you've got to hunker down in that home. So very facturate, very look after yourself. Now, of course, that only works if one, you're not in a, in a target area. There's no point giving that advice to someone in central London, for example, or someone who lives near a, an airbase, for example. So it only works if you're not in a target area and if you have the privilege of a nice, big, sturdy Victorian home with lots of rooms that you can use to stockpile things in where you can burrow down and uh, protect yourself. Yes. I mean If um, you live in a bungalow or a high-rise <laughs> flat, then you would be done for.
1: And if your furniture isn't heavy enough in order yeah. to move it into... I-
2: Ikea, possibly. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, terrible. Ikea furniture would be useless. I love yes.
1: the, the little addition uh, in the Protect and Survive booklet that also says, if you leave, your local authority may need to take your empty house for others to use, so stay at home. Well, that was, yes. I mean, that was
0: terrible. Mean, but also, uh, we, we need to be a bit careful about misinformation, don't we? I mean, I thought that our family had had a copy of Protect and Survive, but in fact, it wasn't delivered to households, was it?
2: No, that's a common misconception. A lot of people seem to remember receiving that booklet on the on the doormat, but that never happened. Um, if nuclear war had been imminent and the government had decided, okay, this is it, then yes, they would have if things had gone according to plan, printed it on mass and delivered it to each household. But we didn't ever reach that point, thankfully. What people might remember is a booklet from their local council, because in the 80s there was a a so-called nuclear-free movement where a lot of left-wing and labour councils across Britain said, we don't agree with this, we don't agree that you can prepare for nuclear war, and indeed the very act of preparing for it suggest that it's something survivable, but it's a risk that we can run. So we don't agree. We do not want to prepare for it. Nonetheless, we are legally obliged to. So they would send out these leaflets saying this is the full and absolute and blunt horror of nuclear war. So that was their way of fulfilling their obligation to Whitehall. We are educating and informing the public, but we're doing it in a very lurid hideous and honest way, way yeah. uh, so much so that Whitehall might have preferred if they'd just shut up about it. I mean,
0: there are uh, this book is, it couldn't be more bleakly comic, and some of the nuggets you, you've dug up about the role of the WRVS, for example, and the possibility of them operating a jigsaws-on-wheels service.
2: <laughs> yeah, I've got great admiration for them. They were oh, formed so have at I. the start yeah. of the Second World War uh, to... Do a kind of womanly version of civil defense, you know. So the welfare aspect, it was for women who were perhaps too genteel to you know muck in and get their hands dirty with you know rescue work or anything seen as dangerous, but they could be in hands to provide blankets and food. So the typically old-fashioned feminine type of civil defense. And they continued during the Cold War to cling on to that same notion that after a nuclear attack we will still turn up with blankets and foods, and we all know that the Women's Royal Voluntary Service are famous for their Meals on Wheels service, which they provide to the elderly. Well, they carried that forward even further and said not only will we have Meals on Wheels, but we will be proposed something like a Jigsaw on Wheels service. So when all the survivors are gathered in a you know, a ruined community centre or a church, we will turn up with blankets and with hot soup and with jigsaws to keep everyone entertained, to keep their mind off the, the collapse of civilization. <laughs> it's just
1: <laughs> it's so mind-boggling. Uh, can you also tell us about Operation Vicar Elastic?
2: Oh, yes. Um, that was an idea to get the clergy involved. Of course, after the nuclear war, the government had to try somehow to keep up the public's morale Uh, Because the government would need us, survivors, to rebuild society, if that would be at all possible. And to do that, you would need, of course, a population who weren't just hopeless and psychologically battered and destroyed. So one of the ways of possibly keeping up morale and giving the impression to survivors that, yes, the British states and... um, is still here and is still functioning was to have vicars, priests, etc., on hand meeting survivors with a little armband on, saying clergyman, and that would give the impression, hopefully, that everything was still ticking along. The street might be choked with rubble and corpses, but here is the vicar with his with his <laughs> um his a. Uh, investments on, to give you spiritual advice and to give you guidance. So he would represent, of course, the religious side of things, but he would also, in a way, represent the state and the fact that organisation was still uh, going on. So there was still a state there to to work for and to, importantly, obey. Uh, you
0: know all this, Julie, and now you've told us, and I'm I'm not sure whether I'm grateful or not, to be honest, uh, but you know it because you've been researching all these declassified documents Um, And we can sort of laugh about this as though the threat has gone, but it hasn't gone, has it? In fact, it's presumably, um, tell us what you think, no less likely than it was back in the 1980s.
2: That's true. Um, I think at the end of the Cold War, we were all, well, certainly I was, far too ready to think the threat of nuclear war has gone now. Uh, And when I think back to the 1990s, it all seems ludicrously happy and giddy and carefree. I was just a teenager then, so maybe that colours my memory of the 90s. And now that seems to have gone completely. And of course the nuclear threat didn't go away. It, it never will as long as these weapons exist. And I think they always will exist. I think campaigning for us all to disarm is pointless. There's no way it's going to happen. And What we should do is campaign to have nuclear weapons reduced and to make them more um, safer, so they're not all on a hair-trigger ready to be fired with a few minutes' notice. So there's no point asking for disarmament. We should ask for reduction, but that's not such a catchy slogan. But no, the threat has never gone away. Uh, You could argue that the threat actually increased because at least in the Cold War, everyone knew, or at least NATO and the Soviet Union, knew what the rules were. And we had people in charge who had direct personal memory of the horror of the Second World War, now we seem to have politicians who are perhaps are a bit more naive. I think of Donald Trump, who, of course, doesn't seem to have experienced any kind of hardship, any kind of direct experience of war. People like him in charge, who I think don't understand the, the horror of it, don't understand the terrible responsibility that they hold or that they held. So I think, yes, we're, we're more at risk now because the old rules have gone uh, and the old, the old Soviet men, for example, that we all feared in the 80s. We could say at least they remembered the terrible German invasion of 41 and at least they were determined it should never happen again. As we're guys on our side, let's not get back into another conflict. Mm. And I think now we're a bit too cosseted and naive and innocent and we're like children playing with these horrific toys. And we have no idea really what we're what we're holding in our hands and what the outcome could be.
1: Do you think that climate anxiety is very much the same as nuclear anxiety? Can we make a comparison? Because a lot of people who are campaigning vigorously um, against climate change would say that it poses exactly the same kind of uh, physical, mental and existential threat to humankind.
2: Um, I, I don't doubt climate change at all, of course, but in a way I kind of resent it because it seems to have taken uh, attention away from the threat of nuclear war. I saw a photograph recently of young people doing a, a, a so-called die-in down in London where they, all, of course, they all lie down in the street and, you know, represents you know a, a pile of, of the dead of what would happen with severe climate change. And we used to see that in the 80s, uh, famously die-ins down in Trafalgar Square. When they were protesting against nuclear weapons, so it does seem as though attention has been shifted away from nuclear war to climate change, which is a bit of a naive move because a full-scale nuclear war would provoke a uh, catastrophic climate change through the theory of nuclear winter. So, um, if your fear is climate change, you should also fear nuclear war, which could bring about climate change and a lot more, a lot quicker and a lot more suddenly than. Gradual climate change through industrialisation, for example.
0: So uh, in brief, if you can, Julie, um, planning uh, for a nuclear war hasn't stopped, has it?
2: No, um, our government are still, I assume, still planning for it. Uh, There's no reason why they wouldn't be. The only difference is that if I go into archives, I won't find any documents and papers about it. They will be released, I assume, in 50 years' time, if we're all still here. So there's no reason to think that the planning has stopped. It's just... It's not available for ordinary members of the public like us.
0: That is the author, Julie McDowell. And I did think it was really interesting, um, the question you put to her about the environment and young people and the fact that, I mean, Julie makes the point that she, she doesn't believe we can get rid of nuclear weapons, but they should. It is interesting that they don't appear to crop up much in the environment debate and all those people who are so passionate about climate change. Do you think it's just nuclear arms fatigue I think I can't think of any other explanation it must be
1: and an acceptance that actually the way nuclear arms have been handled within their lifetime has made them appear not to be the threat
0: because that we thought yeah, they were because i suppose you know people would say and you might well say very legit entirely legitimately they have their very existence has prevented a war although not every war as we know yeah but it's You don't want to disappear down that philosophical rabbit hole of something that should never be used, could never be used, has stopped them being used, if you see what I mean. No, but that is the political argument. Yeah, and it's just, it's a confusing one. Anyway, I just wanted to mention this from Yvette who says, As I approach my 60th birthday, I remember the feeling of inevitable global demise in my late teens and early 20s. I always felt it was just a matter of when somebody pushed that button. However, the fear of the bomb came much earlier, and one example was really close to home. The writer Neville Shute lived quite near to where I live now, and in fact I've lived there for most of my life. And he boasts he based the location of his novel on the beach right here in frankston which is on the outer edge of suburban melbourne in australia it was published in 1957 and the book begins in january 1964 the month my husband was born right here i was six months old in 1959 hollywood came to town as the novel was adapted for the big screen it starred gregory peck ava gardner Fred Astaire and Anthony Perkins, and they were all seen out and about as our small part of the world took centre stage. However, reading the book and watching the film is absolutely chilling. Yvette, thank you for that, and um, good luck with what sounds like a wonderful life you've got there um, in Melbourne. How fantastic. Um, Have you read On the Beach? No, I don't think I have. It's a, it is a very, very good book and it's about, again, it's, it's about the same old thing, but it's about um, everybody, the world has gone to pot and only Australia is left and it's really just a matter of time and they're just waiting. It's really grim. I mean, it's, you know, fallout is coming, but quite slowly. So it's not what the Chris Rear classic is based on then, is it? It really is nothing to do with Mr. <laughs> driving Home for Christmas. No, we've got Christmas to look forward to, everybody. Come on, let's get on, let's get on. I, I didn't know, know Fred Astaire was in that film, I have to say. Anyway. Um, Yvette, you can't you. Le- leap over the coronation and go
1: straight into Christmas. <laughs> straight <laughs> You've to got Christmas. to give us all a bit of a break. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Could I just say a very, very quick but very heartfelt thank you to Alex, uh, who is a fairly new fan of the podcast, describes herself... Uh, Following early retirement at 57 after 14 years at the coalface in a school office. Well, you deserve early retirement after that because you must have met, apart from anything else, some hideous parents during that time, Alex. I bet you have. (laughs) Uh, But it's a really lovely picture that she sent of her and her 20 year old daughter. Uh, No, sorry, the photo is taken by your 20 year old daughter. It's of you and your 19 year old daughter holding hands. Uh, when you were sauntering down a lovely street in Madrid two weeks ago and it's just a beautiful thing actually these little details of people who still hold hands with their mums and do you know what, it really made me think actually the next time I go and see uh, my mum uh, if we go out and about to actually hold her hand too because I think, you know, my mum's in her 80s now we don't see each other as often as we should do uh, or we can do and I think actually it would be a lovely thing wouldn't it? I would absolutely love it if I make it to eighty-one. Yeah. For uh, one of my kids to come and we'll be sauntering around Aldi doing the weekly shop, and their little hand reaches out to mine. So I'm going to try and do that. So
0: thank you, uh, for everybody who's been in touch about that uh, earlier today during the live. Program. No, I'm not holding your hand. No, no, not during the live program. No, but you not mentioned the you talked about the possibility of us being strangled by our robot carers. <laughs> So, I'm here to bring joy to your like, life. I mean, you say I'm a gloomster. I um, I've got a question here, which I'm hoping our operatives will be able to answer. Um, it's from Anne I'm an avid listener to your podcast both now and yes all right. thank you Anne Um, I was looking forward to listening to your show on Saturday to hear your take on the proceedings however I will be flying back from Zurich while you're broadcasting after a mini tour of Europe taking in Budapest Bratislava Vienna and Liechtenstein what a life you lead Anne doesn't that sound fabulous will the show be available on the Times radio app to listen from the start later in the day or what is the answer answer is, I hope you heard that from rather husky assistant Eve there. It's yes. Yes. It's yes. Yes. She's only had 18 cans of Diet Coke today, so she's not quite firing on every single available cylinder.
1: At one point she was wearing a cup on her head that had been made into a a kind of
0: DIY crown by R. Orn. Not everybody is taking this very important event on Saturday, as seriously as they might be. Although I've got to say, our canteen to use a bit of French is en fait is it not
1: it is but I wondered whether that wasn't because the big boss was in town we don't talk about him I don't think
0: it's more than our lives were now Anne I hope you can join us when you get back home I mean it'll be a bit odd listening retrospectively to something that will be completely irrelevant by the time you get round to listen to it. it might be more fun to join us on Tuesday live next week when we can really talk about what really happened is that right what do you think uh, very much so. Yes. yes. No. I'm just looking forward to it. absolutely all
1: of it, Jane. Absolutely marvelous, great. I've just ordered a T-shirt with a sequined crown on. Off we go. Shuffle papers. Good night. What size? Extra small.
0: Oh, that's <laughs> sweet. Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. And don't
1: forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, 3 till 5. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run
0: or running a bank. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you can join us again on Off Air very soon. Don't be so silly.
1: Money, get bank.
0: I know, lady. A lady listener? Sorry. Small details
2: are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right.